The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. At the end of last month, I was in Rome while the wretched synod on synodality was busy collapsing and a massive sex scandal involving Father Marco Rupnik finally came to a head despite the attempts of various Catholic journalists to suppress the truth. And don't worry, I'm not going to talk any more about it. You can check out previous episodes of Holy Smoke for the horrifying background. Let me just say that what happened while I was there would be enough to bring down any secular head of state. Instead, I'm going to talk about something different. The day after all this hoo-ha, I went to the little church of St. Cosmas and Damien, who were brothers, doctors and martyrs in the early church. And obviously I'm named after one of them which is really an extraordinary place, often overlooked by tourists because it's small and not very exciting looking from the outside, but in fact highly unusual in that it incorporates part of a pagan temple and one of the very earliest Christian basilicas. And the difference between the gloom of the temple and the light of the basilica was explained to me brilliantly by one of the world's leading Christian art historians, the great Liz Lev, who's been a guest on this podcast before. I found it a very inspiring conversation, particularly given the context of these awful developments in the Vatican. And I hope you enjoy it, despite the fact that I had to record it in the middle of a little church which was swirling with tour guides and visitors. And yes, there's background noise, but you can certainly hear the unmistakable, wonderful, erudite voice of Liz Lev. Here we are in the Church of St. Cosmos and Damien which I understand is the first church to have been built in the Roman Forum, with continuous masses here since when? Since 525, when the church was first constructed. It's a basilica that is built inside two ancient Roman buildings, which is what makes it such a fascinating space, because both of these buildings started out their existence in the service of pagan Rome. So the actual church where we're sitting in right now was originally a basilica, meaning meeting hall, built by Emperor Vespasian in 100 AD or 70 or 80 AD. And as a matter of fact, outside we can see the big blocks from the first century. And he built it as a medical library because Vespasian's the man who opened the Colosseum. And in the Colosseum, you had gladiators getting wounded and you needed someone to work on them and sew them back together. And that doctor, very, very famous, was Galen. And it was in this building 2,000 years ago that Galen gave his lectures. The other building, the one that's in the front, or sort of that would be where the entrance of the church would be, is a separate structure. And the separate structure was built by Emperor Maxentius. And if you remember, Maxentius is the brother-in-law of Constantine, and it's the battle between Constantine and Maxentius 
on October 28th of 312, we're moving into the anniversary. It was that battle that caused Constantine to legalize Christianity, right? He had the vision on the eve of the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, and after he won the battle, he built the first Christian church, which is St. John Lateran, which is just about a quarter mile from where we're standing. So this this building constructed by Maxentius, which stands right at the entrance from the fourth century, was either a vestibule into the medical library, or it was a temple. It was an actual pagan temple temple dedicated to the son of Maxentius who had died and had due course become a god because as your listeners undoubtedly know the Romans were the ones who believed that human beings could become gods so literally 50 feet from where we're standing is where the temple to Julius Caesar god were next door to the temple to Antoninus Pius and his wife Faustina both rendered gods by the ancient pagan world So it's an interesting space to be in because we could not be any further, any deeper into the heart of of, of paganism. As I understand it, partly from listening to a brilliant lecture by you, the early Christians were incredibly, it was very important to them that their churches should not be mistaken for temples, that the dark space of the temple had no place in Christian worship. Am I right about that? That's what makes this building interesting because we can actually see that at work. The structure of the temple has been modified by Urban VIII Barberini, so it has this nice big light well at the top. But originally, it would have been a dark temple. So imagine when the Christians are given these two buildings together, and they're put into a position to construct a building. You walk into a dark space of the pagan temple. You walk out the other side into a basilica, which by its very definition had huge windows. So where you see today these chapels, once upon a time, these were the enormous clear story windows of the church. So this incredible message that the Christians are saying, when they can broadcast through architecture, come out of the darkness, come into the light. And then, and then the Christians, the building they prefer for their early churches is a building, a basilica, that has axiality. You come in the door, you're going someplace. Christianity, we are a people called together. We are a church militant. We're a church on the move. We're a church that has somewhere to go, and that place is Christ. And so, again, these these ideas that the Christians are enveloping, they want to symbolize everybody together. Indeed, that's why we see the alteration to the altar here. You can see the original altar with that image of uh, the Madonna and Child which is a repainting of an extremely old icon that Gregory the Great used to salute every day when he was going back and forth, called the Madonna della Salute, because it was venerated by none other than Gregory the Great in this exact same spot, a pope who lived from 590 to 604. This is the history we're sitting in. But what I was really saying is that if you look at how the altar is devised, so you see the altar facing towards the Madonna and then up above the image of Christ floating in that mosaic, this golden Christ who's hovering in midair. The idea of the priest leading the people, right? The priest who is at the altar, he's in persona Christi, he's leading the people. And that was the imagery that Christians were trying to capture when they adapted this kind of building, this basilica building, to draw people together and to move them in a continuous direction. And it's interesting that I think most people don't realize, because I didn't, that the Basilica was a secular building. The Christians chose deliberately 
a secular model Absolutely. rather than the religious model of a temple, didn't they? Absolutely. So here's the problem. The Christians in 313 have an emperor who's handing them a check to build buildings. You knock yourselves out, build yourselves some buildings. Religions, civilizations, they make their mark through architecture. So the Christians want to say something about themselves through buildings. They have been dragged to pagan temples for God knows how long, for 250 years. And so they look at the pagan temples and objectively, a pagan temple is the exact opposite of everything the Christians want to say. The pagan temples are lifted up on top of a podium. You're down here, the gods are up here because they don't want to deal with you. The worship space is inside what they call the cella, C-E-L-L-A, which is where we get our word cellar or cell, both dark spaces. So you have this dark room where no one's allowed in, this enclosure where you have the statue or the abode of the god, and the only point of communication between the space of the god and the space of the people is in this outdoor porch area where they put the altar down below. So people, in, when they sacrifice, they sacrifice outside. When they worship, they worship outside. It's subdivos. The gods are in the heaven. We're here. We send up a lot of burning pig fat and the gods will leave us alone, right? That's the reasoning. But that's not who the Christians worship at all. The Christians, they worship a god who stopped being up there, came down to be with us, and the Christians are looking for a building where everyone can be in the house with God. A basilica, the royal meeting hall. What better building, a building meant to be capacious, a building meant to bring people in. The Christians, they love the basilica because of the fact that it can be made big. The very first criteria in early Christian churches, make it big, make people understand they're welcome, not standing outside the door, but inside the church. It had an axiality. It had light with these windows pouring in as opposed to the darkness of the interior temple. And how does Jesus describe himself? He calls himself the light. He calls himself the way. The churches themselves were able to help describe this God that they were celebrating, this God that the martyrs, Cosmos, Damien, Peter, Paul, arrayed in front of us, all these martyrs who died all around us, this is the God that they can now bear witness to in public without fear of reprisal. But what I'm looking at here is a gorgeously Baroque altar. Yes. What would you say to a Protestant who came into this church and said, was this what the early Christians intended? For the altar to be covered in gold, decorated so intensely that you can hardly fit in any more decoration. Is there some respect in which the presence of all this golden decoration reflects the Christians' preoccupation with light? Or is it mixed up with the secular trappings of wealth somehow? Probably a mixture of both, I suspect. I think that um, the uh, decoration in the interior of these buildings was almost immediately, as soon as Christians were legally allowed to produce art, we have a very, very complete list of all the things that Constantine put in the very first Christian church. Up until that point, the Christians were unable to build churches legally. But even so, even so, when you look at the little things that they manufactured, cut out of Peter and Paul in gold, little silver hangings, but they could have. They wanted to give something precious. I mean, it seems to me a kind of a ridiculous idea. So you have an anniversary, you have a birthday, you have a loved one, you want to bring a gift. Is it somehow doing an honor to your friend, to your loved one, to your anniversary, to the, to the event, by bringing some crappy $2 gift? 
Don't you want to give something nice? Don't you want the joy of donating something and showing other people? Look how precious this is. And at the end of the day, the reason why the Baroque does this is because they are coming out of the Protestant Reformation, where the Protestants have caused all this trouble. I'm sorry. But once you start, it's just a piece of bread that is a symbol, and you remove the mystery, and you remove the supernatural, and you remove the real presence of God in that tabernacle right in front of us right now. How on earth are the Catholics going to get people to understand that the most precious thing you will ever encounter, you will ever know, you will ever, ever, ever have, is right there in front of you. If you put it in a simple vessel, 99.9% .9 of people will say, okay, so it's a symbol. If you show that you care enough to put the most beautiful workmanship, the most beautiful, you're willing to sacrifice these candlesticks, not for my own jewelry, not for my own plateware in the house, but to make this place, to, to put around the tabernacle, it is a way that we help people understand preciousness. If I could just quickly point out, because I know we have a lot of Anglican listeners, for a lot of Anglicans, yes. the Eucharist is more than a symbol, and they also make their churches very beautiful. I will completely, completely see the Anglican point, but the Anglicans are also not the ones who look at the Baroque altar and say, why did you do that? And so I, I address those, yeah. I address the ones who I suppose you were channeling when you asked yeah, the question. Exactly. The people who really believe that, that, so you see the second piece of wood altar there, the, the modern one, that somehow that is a more evocative of the sacred. I usually use this example that um, Nobody would watch the Oscars if all the movie stars showed up in jeans and t-shirts. I think nothing destroys a church quicker. What I find very hard to take are beautiful Baroque or medieval churches that have been disfigured by a hideous sort of kitchen yeah. table stuck in the middle of the sanctuary. Completely. But because the world is a very ironic place and God has a very peculiar sense of humor, my parish is this hideous 1960s barn. But the spirit of the people who are in there, the joy, the activity, the things that they do, that is very beautiful. I try not to look at what they think passes for stained glass, but I see the beauty of the people who are there to worship. I see lots and lots of people who work at the Vatican. There are people that I'll see later on in the Vatican post office, or I'll see later on in the Vatican museums. And, and a reminder that we all believe this stuff. Like we work within the framework of the Vatican, but it's nice to know that we also were we believe it, and we're part of this greater community that's not just our paycheck. And I can tell from listening to you and from watching you here in this, what people would imagine was just another little Baroque church in Rome, that you feel close to the early Christians, particularly here. The Christians knew they were different. They knew they were distinct. They knew that they were the ones who were persecuted. They knew they were singled out. They were not allowed to own property. They were not allowed to gather together. And they were very frequently subject to very pointed attacks by real Roman intellectuals who were, you know, wanted to eviscerate their religion in a way that other religions didn't. So they always knew they were seen specially by the government. And of course they knew they were special because they believe in this, this God-made man who came into the world just a few hundred years earlier. When this church was built, it was a half a millennium since Peter and Paul walked the earth. And then it was, you know, it was, I think Cosmos and Damien died in the fourth century. So you have this kind of progression, right? You've got Peter and Paul, the early apostles, they're dressed like Roman senators. We, we feel them. 
present here in Rome. They were right here. So it's very exciting to feel this legacy. We're very connected to this past, especially in a place like this. Liz Lev, it's very exciting to talk to you again. Thank you so much. <laughs>